1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan and I'm an instructor at McMaster University and a cognitive science researcher. I'm joined today by Catherine Kinsler, a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago and the author of How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. This book is a fascinating look at an underappreciated aspect of language, namely how we carve up our social world, make judgments, and form groups based on how people speak. We are often used to thinking about social categories like race, age, gender, and socioeconomic status, but this book shows that we might be underrating the way people speak as an important category in our social lives. Catherine, thank you so much for speaking with me today about the book.
0: Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here.
1: This is a wonderful book that has so many fascinating examples of how the way we speak affects our social relationships. I'm wondering if, just to start off, you can say a bit about who you are, what your research is about, and what led you to write this book?
0: Sure, thanks. So I'm a developmental and social psychologist, and a lot of my research studies kids. Um, Now, I'm interested in kids, you know, for kids' sake. Childhood is really fascinating. But I'm also interested in them for understanding who we are as adults, now, as you said, it's so easy to find situations of social divisions among adults. It seems that we are just ready and willing and able to divide people into groups and often to prefer people who are like us. Um, so you can, might see this based on race gender, class, um, nationality, political party identification, sports team affiliation, that the list goes on and on. Um, But as you said, the way we speak, the language we use, and the accent we use in that language can be such a critical feature of how we identify um, ourselves, how we connect to other people, but then also who we see as being like us or not like us. And so there can be tremendous social divisions and stereotypes and prejudices based on language. And I think that we're really not aware of this, but we should be.
1: I think that one thing that this book really illustrates is that when we talk about the way people speak, maybe people think about accent. Namely, if, for instance, English is not your first language, then you might speak with a a hint of your native tongue. but. What you kind of demonstrate is that the way we speak has so, so much more to do than with just that kind of narrow conception of accent. I'm wondering if we could maybe go through some different uh, ways of speaking that you kind of discuss in the book, just to give, uh, at, at the start, a sense of all the different things that are encompassed by what, how you say it, um, This these different ways of speaking. So, of course, we all understand what it means to speak with a foreign accent, but, but let's just do another one. Um, this idea of valley girl talk or, or up talk what is what is that
0: yeah sure so maybe I'll just provide even just another note of context for what you just said which is that I mean, first of all, everybody has an accent. And so, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, well, I speak in this, you know, neutral way, and then somebody else has an accent. But our accent or the sounds of our language, that's true for that's true for all people. And so everybody who speaks any language is doing so with an accent. And then I also really like what you said about how we can think about accent as in a foreign language that in some or that in some ways are some broad strokes of our language are set really early in life that we're so much better at learning language as children than as adults. So, in that sense, when you open your mouth, you often, you know, give away something about who the adults were who were talking to you when you were a child, or who the children were, even in many instances, who were talking to you when you were a child. Um, but then within any language, or even within a dialect of a language, you could have variation in how different people speak, and often that maps on. To their age and many other uh, many other variables about them.
1: Totally. So maybe maybe I'll just do uh, some some rapid fire examples. Then. So um, th- maybe I'll just give you two valley girl up talk or, or vocal fry. What do these mean in terms of what? people infer about people on the basis of this way of speaking
0: yeah so these are two changes that have been seen among young people um in, you know the past generation or so and so the upspeak is ending a sentence with a question so i was a teenager in the 90s and i think of the movie clueless as my reference point for this and vocal fry is the, um, kind of a, uh, sort of a growly, uh, sounding, you know, addition to your vowels or to the end of your word. Um, and... This again is something that young people do now. Something that's pretty characteristic of language and language change is that whenever a new way of speaking is introduced, older adults don't like it. So it's really common to hear things like, "Oh, these you know young people are kind of destroying the language" or saying mm-hmm. something that sounds terrible. But if you ask younger people, often they don't mind it, right? They might even like it. They could be part of the generation that's engaged in the language change, um, and so that's just you know how it works. So for Vocal Fry, there's a really Fascinating study, where of course adults will say that this isn't the right way to speak, and then young adults will hear somebody uh, with those features saying, "Oh, that sounds like somebody who's you know going somewhere."
1: Hmm. Another example, I think that you actually open the book with is this idea of. Uh, for, for lack of a better term, speaking with a gay voice—the the 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 fact that uh, gay people, stereotypically at least, or or perhaps in reality, speak uh, a particular way—what what what does that mean in terms of is that an accent? How should we understand that as a as a way of speaking?
0: So there's a lot of stereotypes around this that are not in fact true. So one mm-hmm. stereotype is that uh, gay people and gay men in particular speak with what uh, what you might see in the movies as sort of a lisp. And that's not true at all. It turns out linguists have studied this. Now, one thing, again, a caveat to note is that there's so much variability. So it's not like there's a gay way of speaking and a straight way of speaking. That's Mm -hmm. not true at all, right? There's tons of overlapping distributions. However, linguists have said, okay, is there any truth to this. You know, if you looked at, say, 100 straight men and 100 gay men, could you pick out who was who based on their voice? Um, And, you know, not always, for sure. But Mm -hmm. you are going to find, on average, some gay men have some vowels that are, um, that can be identified. And basically, the difference is not about anything about lisping. And in fact, gay men sometimes will hyper articulate their speech. And so Mm -hmm. it's actually... Actually, the vowel is like cleaner and crisper in some way. Um, And so I think the right way to think about this is that. Any social community often develops its own characteristic way of speaking. That when you connect mm-hmm. with a community, your voices become more similar to one mm-hmm. another. And that can happen, you know, anywhere and among any social group because language is so social. So if you've got a really tight knit community where people are coming together and speaking together, there are going to be some aspects of the way they speak that are shared uh, among that community.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Maybe we can just do one other example while sure. we're talking through different uh, types of accent and uh, maybe speak about just the sheer number of ways of speaking that there are within America alone. We maybe often like to think about, say, British regional accents where kind of each town has its own little uh, unique way of speaking and you can tell some something about a person from that. But that is certainly true of the United States as well. What do we know about the sheer amount of like accent and English speaking diversity among Americans.
0: So there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of uh, diversity in the way people speak English in the US. There's dialect differences. um, And so dialects are going to have, you know, slight variations in accent and then also some grammatical variations in terms of what's considered grammatically correct, some word choice differences and so forth. Um, So, you know, there's uh, Southern American English, there's African American English, sometimes called African American Vernacular English. There's several varieties or dialects of uh, Southern American English in different parts. You know, you can see regional differences in any of these dialects that are going to um, that are going to vary slightly region to region. Um, And so, uh, you know, people have studied New York English a lot. um, And so, you know, there's some there's some really characteristic ways of talking that people might identify you as being a New Yorker. Um, one example is dropping R's at the end um, of a sentence. Another is um, what people call is this kind of vowel raising in the middle. So um, coffee talk or coffee talk, something like that. And so those are some you know subtle examples. But the idea is that one thing that I think is really important to remember is that different dialects of English are not just like bad English or less good than some other form of English. And that's what we often, you know, that's sort of where the stereotypes and the prejudice come in, but that actually, you know, all dialects of English have an internally coherent and consistent uh, grammatical structure. And so it's just that different dialects grow up with different groups of speakers.
1: Yeah. I think this is probably the place where maybe many people's, uh, conception of maybe what linguists do does not match what linguists actually do and think about. I think maybe people think that the role of the linguist is to, you know, determine what is correct in the language. And it's actually quite the opposite. The role of the linguist is to actually observe the way that people speak, uh, because language is just how people speak. And so there is no necessarily right or wrong way of speaking. If, if that's how you speak that, if that's how you speak, then that is interesting and, uh, worthy of study. And, um, so uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying there about about uh, this linguistic diversity and and that these are just simply different variants uh, of English and and neither is none is correct or incorrect. Yeah, really well. Um, one of the most striking observations about uh, accents and the way that people speak is that children of first-generation immigrants rarely speak like their parents. They typically speak like their peers. Why is this the case? And what does that tell us about the way that children in particular uh, learn how to speak?
0: Yeah, so it's fascinating watching kids learn languages and seeing what they ultimately learn. So, you know, one example is children who grow up in the U.S. and they have parents who speak a different language, a language that's not English at home. And, you know, the question is, what do the kids grow up speaking? Now, many of them learn that home heritage language. So imagine that you're speaking Spanish at home, you learn Spanish at home, and then you go to school and you learn English in school. Um, so the question is often, well, what happens when they learn English? Imagine that they're getting a lot of input at home of English, say, in a non-native accent um, by parents who learned English later in life. And then you go to school and you get a bunch of input from peers there. And ultimately, kids end up, uh, very often talking like their peers. Now, I think that this makes sense in the sense that when you think about how deeply social language is, and you think about how kids are invested in sounding like they're, they're invested in being like their peers and invested in fitting in. And so speaking like your peers is one way to do that.
1: What, um, What does that say in terms of the influence that parents actually have? over their children. I mean, we, you know, there's kind of this idea that parents are able to shape their kids, but so much of what kids, at least in terms of, uh, linguistically ends up being, uh, like their peers. I think of, uh, Judith Rich Harris, the, the, the nurture assumption, mm-hmm. this idea that maybe parents have quite a bit less control over how their children turn out than maybe, uh, you might naively believe. Is that kind of part of the story here?
0: So, I mean, I think that's linguistically
1: part of the story
0: in some Mm -hmm. senses. At the same time, I think about parents as gatekeepers of opportunities. And Mm. so, you know, your kids might be learning from their peers, but who those peers are is so important, right? And Mm -hmm. so you can imagine, you know, another thing I talk about in the book is about the advantages of being exposed to linguistic diversity in multiple Mm -hmm. languages early in life. So I think you could think, okay, my kids are really invested, they're socially invested in being like other kids. Well, who are those other kids that they're being exposed to? Or what other environments are they in? Can I create an environment where kids are exposed to diversity in different ways? But I think linguistic diversity is one important part of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe while we're on the topic, you could say a bit about that exact question of the advantages of being exposed to linguistic diversity, different languages, different ways of speaking from early in life. Yeah.
0: So I think there's a number of benefits. Now, of course, most simply, if you're exposed to multiple languages early in life, you grow up able to speak those and communicate with those people. And then that might have a lot of social rewards or professional opportunities down the road. So, you know, I think there's some, there are some great benefits that come just from mastering additional languages. Um, but I also think there are some benefits that are non-linguistic. And so in some of my studies and other colleagues' research, we found that when you're in an early multilingual environment, you may gain some advantages in terms of perspective taking. So I think about a kid who's in a multilingual environment and think about all the social complexity that they have. They might be thinking, oh, you know, maybe mom speaks this way, but dad. Doesn't Or grandma speaks this way, but neither of my parents, you know, do, but she does with her friends, but she speaks a different way with my parent, or maybe we speak this way at home, but we speak this way at school and so forth. So you're keeping track of who speaks what to whom, who knows what, who communicates with whom and so forth. So it's just all of this training and taking the linguistic perspective of others. And I think that can... uh, play out in terms of taking perspectives of others more generally, which is really a hallmark of effective communication and interpersonal understanding.
1: I think there are probably a lot of um, misconceptions out there about bilingualism. Um, You know, maybe some people believe that if you try to learn Multiple languages. There's only so much space in the brain to learn, you know, one or two languages at a time. Um, what is the truth or our best understanding of the science in terms of what the what the young mind can handle in terms of being exposed to uh, and learning multiple different languages and one's ability to be able to speak multiple languages early in life.
0: Yeah. I think you said it really well that some people might have this nervousness. Um, Sometimes we call it the monolingual myth. And it's sort of this idea that even if you valued multilingualism, like you think, yeah, that would be pretty cool if my kid could speak multiple languages, but parents might just feel a little nervous. Like, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. I really want to focus on those important subjects. My kid needs to learn to read and do math and learn science. And so maybe there's just not, you know, space for this other language. And I think that's just not how the brain works. And so little minds are able to learn more than one language and reading and math and science and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it, you know? And so when you look at, uh, You look at kids' language acquisition, you find that the basic milestones they go through when they're either learning one language versus learning two or even more languages are remarkably similar. Now, some people say, well, but aren't there maybe some um, delays or limitations when you're learning multiple languages? And I would say the one, um, I would call this a difference, not a delay, but the one difference that is sometimes observed is that kids who are learning multiple languages may have a slightly smaller vocabulary in each language to start. And so, But if you think about that, it's not the fairest test. So because you might know a word for lots of different things. It's just maybe you talk about this word in your English context and you talk about this other word in your Spanish context and you haven't yet learned the words for both. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, kids catch up. And uh, by the time they're in school, it's absolutely possible to be a completely proficient speaker of more than one language.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I always certainly found that when interacting with, you know, kids in my classes who are exposed to multiple languages at home, I thought, man, these 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 folks were given a superpower. Yeah. They didn't have to do anything. They just had multilingual parents. And now they, you know, they just have this incredible uh, advantage, uh, if, if only just as a kind of a, a fun party trick and yeah. uh, a convenience while traveling. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I learned uh, being Canadian, I guess we, many people learn French. I did, you know, French immersion classes. Mm-hmm. But, but even then, um, learning a second language later in life simply does not compare <laughs> to, uh, to having it spoken to you full time uh, at home.
0: Yeah, and a lot of educational systems do it kind of backwards. So in the U.S. at least, you know, there's more schools that offer second languages in middle school or in high school, though even there it's somewhat limited, you know. And so and actually the middle school rate has been um, even slightly declining over recent years. Hmm. And then when you look at elementary school, it's just a really, you know, it's absolutely a minority of elementary schools that offer foreign language instruction. And that's just really backwards when you think about the way that kids
1: learn. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like there are so many reasons, uh, especially in the United States where, like you said, there's just so much, uh, linguistic diversity. There should be so much, so many good reasons for, uh, for young kids to be, to be learning uh, multiple languages. I, I think in particular of Spanish, uh, which, you know, uh, it seems so many in, in the United States speak and seems like an absolute no brainer that, it, you know, you would want to expose your kids to that as, yeah. as early as possible. Yep. Um, Uh, Maybe switching gears a little bit to talk a bit more about the role of kind of the social function of language. People often find that they end up speaking like another person uh, if they're around them for a long time. Uh, I certainly felt I had a professor, I had a teacher in high school who I really, really admired. And I found myself, he he was a real articulator. The way he said the names of people, he really uh, enunciated every letter. And I have found that I, I think my voice changed permanently After that class, because I really took to this guy's way of speaking. And I think now, uh, you know, it's, it's useful, I guess, for, for podcasts. I, I find that I really uh, enunciate. Um, so, um, first of all, is this a real phenomenon, this felt sense of people uh, speaking like another person uh, that they're around for an extended period of time or whom they like? And, and why and how does that happen?
0: It is a real phenomenon. And it happens more when you like someone. And so I do wonder if you liked this teacher, um, or at least respected the teacher, you know, felt something positive there. Um, So when two people come together, and especially when they like each other, their voices often converge, and it can be really subtle, it might take a linguist to analyze your vowel space to see if actually, you know, you're Hmm. converging at that local moment. But, you know, more broadly, when we talked before about, you know, different changes in languages or how different social groups will speak in different ways, this is a really similar phenomenon. It's the idea that when you're coming together and you're in this, you know, this social, you're in a in a social or learning context with someone, absolutely, your voice can shift subtly to match theirs. Now, I think that, of course, you're not going to, if you spent as an adult a bunch of days around your, you know, native uh Spanish speaking teacher, and you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to gain a native like mastery of Spanish in the same way if it's a language that's not a native tongue. And so, you know, there are limits to this amount of accommodation. But I think that absolutely, people's voices change when they're around others, and particularly around people that they like.
1: How much of that process would you say is conscious versus unconscious? I think in the case of this teacher, whom I really respected, I think some percentage of it was me consciously, you know, trying to speak like this person. But there are also situations where you'll pick up on little ticks or habits of language that other people use. For instance, if if uh, I don't know, people have little catchphrases, and you spend time with them, you find yourself starting to use them. Yeah, how does the conscious versus unconscious play into that melding of of, of language with? people in social groups
0: yeah a lot of it can be unconscious as you said that you could pick up on somebody's expression you could change your voice slightly depending if you're talking to someone or you're just in a different context so i think there are people who often find themselves sort of by dialectal by you know speaking more than one dialect um and so if you move, your voice might shift to match where you are, if you go to school in a different place. And so for a lot of people, this can be subtle. Now, I think you can find ex- interesting examples on the internet of politicians who are speaking to different audiences, say in the North versus South, and then sound really different. And mm-hmm. so part of it could be this you know, conscious manipulation of trying to get people to like you. But I think a large part of it is just like for any person, uh, the way you speak is going to change slightly when you're in a different social environment, when you're trying to connect with different people.
1: Yeah, that's it's fascinating. Maybe we can speak a bit about some of your research on uh, accents and prejudice. Um, what evidence do we have that children favor voices uh, or accents that are similar to their own? And when does this developmental difference originate in the life of a human child?
0: Yeah. So babies are born these remarkable linguistic creatures that are really ready and willing and able to, um, to learn language, brand new babies, newborns, um, emerge able to recognize a language that sounds familiar. So imagine that, um, you were a newborn baby and your mom was speaking French, uh, in the womb or when you were in the womb, um, It probably sounds something like language broadcast underwater, so it might be muffled, and you know, it's not that you're getting the full linguistic signal. Nonetheless, that baby is going to like the sound of French as a newborn and you know, find it uh, something familiar to it as compared to a different language. So, when I was first a graduate student and really interested in kids' early social understanding, I was interested in this question of whether babies just had this auditory preference for speech that was familiar to them um, or whether it started to turn into a social preference, a preference for people who spoke to them in a familiar way. And so we started to test babies, now older babies, not newborns, but, you know, babies between five, say five and 10 months of age. Um, And so babies start to do things like look at people or reach for people or eat things. So you can use these other responses that babies give. And we found in all of those instances, babies started to look to people who spoke to them, who had just spoken to them in a native accent of their native language. They seemed to want to take a toy from somebody or even in one. Study, we had different people model eating different foods. These were 12 month old babies. So they're really, you know, excited to try all the foods. It's not that they wouldn't eat a foreigner's food, but they seem to eat more of the food when it was presented by somebody speaking a familiar native language and eating the food first. So I think babies are really honing in on. Who's, fami- who's speaking a familiar language and even with a familiar accent to me. Now, I wouldn't call this linguistic prejudice per se. I think what this is, is seeing language as a critical social indicator and as a way to start to divide the social world for kids. Mm. And I think that society layers a lot of prejudice on top of that. Mm. And then that's going to come in slightly later.
1: Right. Yeah, you, you cite some evidence showing that that this this preference for voices that sound like ours might even uh, be stronger than uh racial preferences, certainly in childhood. Can you speak about how those kind of different preferences that children have, maybe because they're competing interests here, right? Kids like people who look like them, sound like them, uh, are maybe the same age as them. Is there a kind of weighting of what babies and children prefer? Uh, How do these different things interact with each other?
0: Sure. So when we're thinking about prejudice against different groups, um, the structure of society matters a lot. So, you know, when you think about what society values structures of racism that could be present in a lot of different areas, um, kids start to pick up on that. And so kids start to figure out, oh, you know, my society values this, even if it's subtle. And then they start to pick up on structures of prejudice that are present. Now, little kids don't necessarily know that yet. And so little kids might have a preference for familiar people in a way that I don't think is deeply prejudiced when they're little. But of course, they're like little cultural sponges that are then going to absorb the the prejudice that society has. So I often think about kind of two different things. So one is early in life, kids seem to have this preference for familiar speakers. And that for children, this can sometimes matter more than how somebody looks. So, you know, in one study, for instance, I had um, five year old white kids who spoke English, and they were asked to express their preferences, you know, seeing different, just like, here's some kids, who do you like, or who do you want to play with? And they sadly picked other white children, um, and they also picked people who spoke in a familiar accent in English um, over a foreign accent. But then when we pitted the variables against one another, so the question was would you like to play with somebody? who looks like they're of a familiar race but speaks in a foreign accent versus somebody who looks like they're of a race that's different from you and less familiar in your in um, your local school but speaks in a native accent. Kids preferred the familiar accented person over somebody who was an own race or familiar race individual. So I think early in life, these kids, you know, they were starting to express race-based preferences. So for instance, these white kids were picked white kids over Black kids when given a choice, which is really sad to see. At the same time, the second that somebody opened their mouth and spoke in a way that was familiar, we saw that these race-based preferences were really eclipsed. And so I think that attention to race is developing and changing over the course of childhood, whereas a preference for familiar language is something that kids seem to do right away.
1: Is there some reason to believe that maybe um for evolutionary reasons kids are even more attuned to these kind of differences in the way people speak i mean i know from studying the history of racial science and the way we classify people by race it's all fairly new the way we think about race um and it's all fairly arbitrary the way we think about race according to skin color Mm -hmm. it 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 it, in the course of human history and certainly in the course of biological history it doesn't really make a lot of sense uh whereas presumably differences in the way people speak that has Uh, always existed. Yeah, is there some kind of historical or evolutionary story here as well?
0: Yeah, I think you said it really well, which is why people often talk about race as being more of a psychological and a sociological construct as opposed to a biological one. And in fact, if you look back in our evolutionary history, differences in skin color are really very recent in terms of, you know, how long humans have been on the planet, um, reflecting patterns of migration um, that, you know, uh, that are somewhat recent when you think about the long history of humans. In contrast, for as long as we've been able to speak um and estimates vary but a long time um he, people have probably spoken in different ways that's because language can change so quickly and so you know that's one of the fascinating things about language is that it's a moving target so you imagine going way back when you know some hunter-gatherers who moved across two different say moved across a mountain range um you know after a generation or two they're certainly not gonna look very different in terms mm-hmm. of their skin color but they absolutely would have sounded different in the idea that language can just change so quickly. And so if groups aren't in contact with each other for as long as humans have been speaking, they've probably been speaking in different ways.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating Uh, uh, just to... to I, one one thing that your book really just brought into very clear relief for me, and, and I hope for any of the other listeners, is just kind of how little maybe many of us have been paying attention to these kind of questions of of language and accent as being like a fundamental importance uh, in the way we think about um our, our views of ourselves and uh, and other people, I think one example of that is uh, stereotypes. We readily associate different ways of speaking with with different stereotypes about people. Um, you know, people maybe from the from the southern United States or from Texas or wherever is viewed as kind of fun and nice and trustworthy, whereas people from the you know the types of accents you might hear in a, in a, on, on the nightly news, those people are erudite and scholarly. And academic, where do these kind of prejudices, you can speak about that one or or any other or just in the abstract, where do these prejudices arrive from? Do they have any basis in reality? And is it the case that even people who speak in, in that way feel those prejudices maybe even against their own kind of way of speaking?
0: Yeah. These are all really good questions. And I think what you said about people realizing the weight of language for their psychologies and their own lives, but also I think we often don't think of language and stereotypes and prejudice when we think about our society, yet Hmm. we should. And as you said, there can be stereotypes that get passed on often. They're perpetuated by the media. And so, you know, you can, there's people who, um, when we think about linguistic stereotypes, there's people who've analyzed media, both adult media and also media for kids. And you find things like what you said, that if a Southern American um, accent is featured, it's more likely to be nice, but not that smart. And so when you see, you know, one example of this, it's hard to know if it's a pattern, but if you look across all the media that children might consume and you see this pattern adding up, then that can say something about the data that they're getting from their society. And of course, this means that you could unfairly apply a stereotype to an individual that you could meet someone, know absolutely nothing about them. You don't know if this is a nice person or not, a smart person or not. You don't know what their personality is like. And yet people will infer lots of things about that individual based on the the stereotypes that they have about the group even if this you know there's nothing true about that at all. So in and then this idea about can you have a negative stereotype against your own group? Absolutely. And so linguists sometimes talk about linguistic insecurity, the idea that you could feel bad about how you speak and you could feel bad that other people are evaluating you and that's absolutely true and something that many people face.
1: Yeah, it's really um one one, one thing that you mentioned in the early stages of the book that once again really got me thinking was, this might have been an anecdote from a friend of yours, I can't quite remember, but something about, you know, someone saying, oh, I have a super diverse group of friends, yeah. uh, you know, uh, r- racially diverse, whatever, but then realizing all these people speak the exact same way and and kind of thinking about my own life, I realize that is true. I, you know, run um, an admissions process for uh, a fellowship and for uh, an undergraduate u- university program. And in both of those, we do consider, you know, diversity along many different axes mm-hmm. in terms of the types of people we want to be in our program. But You know, these are written applications. And so (laughs) we we have, first of all, we have no idea how the people speak. And then the people come to these, uh, uh, participate in these um, programs really do all speak the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we're kind of missing uh, kind of an important axis when we're thinking about the types of diversity that we ought to be thinking about? For instance, in my case, running, running a program like that?
0: I think it's a great thing to be aware of and to ask ourselves about as, as you're doing. Um, and it could be diversity in the way you speak. It could also be your linguistic diversity in terms of the experiences that you had, that being exposed to different languages as a child or growing up speaking one language and learning a different language in school, all that is a critical part of the different social experiences that people face.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the hypothetical where, you know, a lot of employment, uh, a lot of employers will say, you know, we do not discriminate on the basis of race, age, gender, socioeconomic status, um, disability, um, accent. Um, you know, maybe there is a hypothetical future wherein that is the case. But I guess that leads us to the question that many people are aware that there are racial and gender-based prejudices in, for instance, hiring practices? There are studies where, you know, one person's name is on the CV or depending on whether an applicant to a job is white or black, they might, they might not get the job. Um, is there similarly uh, uh, an accent-based prejudice that we can see?
0: Yeah. Um, I think that there, there's a particularly insidious form of bias based on accents in employment contexts and people don't always realize it and the reason for that is that in um in employment so in the U.S. employment, which is the context I know best, right? So in U.S. employment law, accent itself is not a protected category. So if accent signifies something like national origin, it can be. So, you know, you can't not hire somebody because they speak in a way that tells you they're from a different nation. And then, you know, being from a different national origin is a protected category. The the, the sneaky part about accent is how it's wrapped up in communication and how social biases can sort of invade our very notion of what it means to understand something. So people often think they're really good at knowing what they can and can't understand. And so then it's easy to say, oh, well, I didn't hire this person because they just weren't a good communicator. I just couldn't understand them well. But actually, our notions of who we can and can't understand are really informed by accent. So even if you understand somebody perfectly fine, there's research showing that when somebody speaks in a way that you consider to be non-native or non-standard in some way, you might find their voice to be less credible. And that's just, you know not fair. Um, Likewise, you might think, oh, well, I I didn't, I understood them, but somebody else wouldn't and communication is so critical for my job. And so I really need somebody who's going to be able to communicate effectively during these high stake interactions. But again, whether or not we understand somebody, whether or not we think somebody's a good communicator can often reflect more about the listener and the social biases they bring to the table than the actual speech of the person communicating.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is definitely something I've noticed even, even in myself, you know, I'll speak with someone and then see, uh, and and speak with them in, in, um, communicate with language out loud and then speak with them via text and feel like, wow, this person is so much smarter, <laughs> you know, in in writing mm-hmm. than they are maybe in speech. And I realize that actually I am being clouded and my, my judgment of this person's maybe intelligence or the quality of their ideas is definitely being clouded by the fact that I'm kind of paying attention to this to this accent. So, um, yeah, I, once it's something that once once you start noticing becomes uh, becomes very difficult to shake and is it must be, you know, has to be. A Conscious process to kind of get rid of those associations. Is there anything that we can do to kind of, uh, yeah, maybe shake that those kinds of uh, prejudices or, or or biases in in favor of ways of communication that are more familiar to us?
0: I think that just acknowledging this and having a conversation about it is really important. And I hope that as people start to think about it, they might say, "Oh, you know, ha." Huh, I was interacting with this person and I felt like they were, you know, they had such a heavy accent. I didn't understand them, but wait, actually I I could understand them. And so, you know, maybe part of it, there's a lot of research showing how much communication is two-sided. And so when a listener thinks they can't understand someone or think someone's not doing a good job communicating, they often just kind of shut down and stop listening and stop being engaged, stop asking follow-up questions. And so I think as listeners, if we realize that potential risk or tendency in ourselves, it might help us be better listeners and continue to engage.
1: Yeah, you have a great example in the book uh, about Mazarin Banaji, who is the inventor of the implicit association test, right? Which, which has been uh, so revealing for so many to understand so many of our implicit uh, prejudices, but you have an example of her, not kind of uh, similar to how I, you know, thought someone was a better communicator in text versus in speech, maybe not recognizing someone's ideas as, as being as good as uh, they perhaps were because of, because of the way they spoke. And I thought that that was really revealing that even, you know, a psychologist whose job it is to investigate prejudice, um, that 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 can happen to them too so i i would completely agree that kind of recognizing that in oneself Mm -hmm. um and and reflecting on that is is super super important
0: yeah yeah (laughs)
1: So I'd like to talk just a little bit more about accent and and the difficulty of accent and how much it reveals about, about who we are faking an accent or speaking in an accent is really, really difficult, right? We pay, you know, actors millions of dollars because the idea of speaking like someone else is actually really, really difficult. So why is faking an accent or changing your accent deliberately so hard um, and, And what what exactly is going on there that that makes it such a salient feature of the way that we speak? Yeah, I
0: think about this when you think about movies, you know, people, you know, who are in movies or TV actors who you think, you know, them. And then all of a sudden you learn that, you know, actually, I don't know you know, somebody who I thought was this American actor who I knew so well for my favorite show actually speaks with a British accent and it can be really jarring. Like, right. like I thought I knew you and, and now I don't, you know, something like that. And I think it's because, um, it's really, really hard as an adult to master a native sounding, you know, a different native sounding accent, whether it's in uh, your own language or master a foreign language with a native sounding accent. It's so difficult. And it's so difficult because many of our linguistic settings are set in childhood. And so we are much better at learning languages when we're young than when we're adults. And so because of that, you know, when an actor shows this ability to to train and actually, you know, cross this linguistic divide. It can be absolutely fascinating and impressive, and sometimes a little bit unnerving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had that experience, especially like you said, with people whom you could have sworn uh, were American but are in fact British. They are having lived in the UK uh, for a couple of years myself, and having tried and failed. To uh, develop any sort of passable British accent, I can appreciate just 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 how incredibly difficult um, that feat is. Uh, we, we spoke a little bit about this at the beginning of the interview, but maybe I'd like to go into it a bit more about how language changes over time. Uh, as as we've kind of discussed, language is always changing. Language is not in any way uh, a static thing, both as we've seen in any given person's lifetime and across generations. What in particular is the role of Uh, teenagers, and in particular teenage girls, in the way that uh, language evolves.
0: Yeah, so young people often change a language and possibly even uh, young women more than young men. And I think the idea is that adolescence is a time when people are, you know, forming their own path and often breaking off from the old established culture and uh, traditions. And With that breaking off, can come language change. Now, languages more generally tend to shape and evolve and split off at moments of social change. Um, So, and you know, social discord. So, if two groups don't like each other, they split off from each other in their, you know, perhaps. Physically, they might split off, but then also linguistically, they split off from each other. And mm. so social change is what begets language change. And I think you see this in adolescence as a really natural case study of social change. And you see this uh, among whole groups of people, too, who are going through some sort of, if a group is going through some sort of a social fracture, their language is going to split as well. Likewise, which is kind of the opposite of when pe- people who really like each other come together in a new group, then you're also going to see language change that reflects
1: this new social community yeah it's 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 absolutely fascinating and 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 to think about all the ways that that our language can change it's uh it really becomes it's hard to view the world and your interactions with other people differently once you start kind of viewing things through the lens of uh the discussion that we're having that was certainly my experience reading this book is then i start to you know everyone i speak to someone will speak to me and then i'll kind of mimic their language back and then i'll be like oh my goodness i'm (laughs) i'm doing it um One thing that uh, is part of a lot of the discourse right now in psychology and in academic research is this question about the uh, replication crisis, this idea of reproducibility, this worry that maybe, you know, our samples, the people that we investigate, they're too... Uh, white and affluent and narrow in their backgrounds. Yeah. The results and the, the the science that we're talking about today, it, we've been speaking a lot about English because we are both uh, English speakers and that's the language the book is written in. Mm-hmm. But what evidence do we have uh, maybe across languages, across different parts of the world, that that these phenomena are robust?
0: Yeah. So, you know, in writing this book, I felt in some ways that there was really a gap in the psychology literature, in this sort of, you know, controlled experimental social psychology design that's often looking at uh, biases and prejudice and intergroup attitudes. And so this is a whole field that will think about race and gender and other kinds of categories. Now, of course, language is really heavily represented in psychology research but it's often more in cognitive research on language acquisition um and you know comprehension and so it's not so much about language as this social category. So in thinking about this book and in thinking about the topic, I went to some other literatures where people do talk much more about the social meaning and social life of language. And so psycholinguistics, sociolinguistics, linguistic anthropology, you see a lot of interesting evidence in relationships to education or even the law, some economic studying about uh, hiring or wage gaps and different ways of speaking. And so I think you know, one thing that makes me feel feel that a lot of this research is, you know, there are some individual studies, of course, that I talk about, but I also think a lot of it is grounded in a much broader survey of the social sciences where people are not just using experimental methods, but a really tremendous diversity of research methods.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I, I think that the book has has, has so much in here. Um, I am I am mindful of your time, and we've covered only a fraction of uh, of everything else that's that's actually in the book. So I would encourage anyone who is interested in in these topics to pick that up. I'm wondering if just to close, um, you have any kind of thoughts about the directions that uh, this research is going in the future. Uh, I teach at a university and I'm often in contact with people who are interested in psychology, interested in uh, sociolinguistics, maybe interested in uh, developmental questions about how babies think and learn. What are kind of the most interesting or promising questions that are still left open in areas of research that that you are interested in yourself?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of research to come, I hope, on the way that our um, perception of different people pervades our, uh, communication, our ability to speak with each other, our feelings and our prejudice when we are speaking. And so, you know, I do think understanding this in different contexts and understanding this in an educational context is going to be really important. Um, I think that we have a lot of biases that come out, including in education, in terms of thinking about like, what's the most important thing to learn in schools is language learning, a critical, you know, a critical part of education. Or is it something that's kind of done on the side? And I think it really is a critical part of education. So that's kind of more a policy thing to end on. But I think there's a lot of science to be further discovered about the way that that language and accent impacts our judgments and evaluations of others. And then I think there's really important educational and policy implications of that.
1: Fantastic. Well, I I'm looking forward to you know how this kind of research plays out in the future, how some of it can turn into policy and culture, and hopefully that through your book and uh, through discussions, this can become a more salient part of how people understand themselves and uh, and their social relationships. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me today. This has been a discussion of how you say it with. Catherine Kinsler, thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.